I'd like to uh, answer a statement, a book. I ran back to my office. I thought, well, they won't believe it, so I'll have to get the book. So I ran back and got it. And I'm going to wave. Get your Bibles. We're going to turn. We'll read a little bit and we'll let you sit down. I know you're weary, and but if we could stand just for the reading, we're going to read a couple verses. Okay, I ran and got it. Here's, here's what I want to respond. I'm not preaching against this, and I'm not preaching because of this, but I am responding to it tonight. I'm going to, I am not going to let this stand. And I want to defend the Bible tonight. I believe in the word of God. If every devil in hell turns purple, I believe in the Bible. Now, this gentleman has told me in this very large bunch of words. If you, you can't see it, but I'm going to wave it around. It says, now you notice I... I did this dramatically tonight. I went and I have a stack of Bibles here. And you I know everybody can't see them, but right here I've moved I've moved the uh, the table that we use to put our Bibles on and I have brought every major Bible in other words, in the English language, they're translating it. We're going to soon have more translations than we have people. But there it is. I, there's my Bible. I paid a pretty good money for that little tiny, uh, well, I don't know what it is. I thought it was an Oxford Bible. But anyway, uh, where the paper, you don't wear it out that quick. And I think I paid, uh, I've had this Bible since I was, over the Bible school in Indianapolis. So I've had this, I think I paid $100 for that little tiny Bible. And I put it right on top of these. And this gentleman tells me that 8,000 verses in my Bible are false. That's what this book says. That this Bible right here has 8,000 places in the Greek that are false. Well, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer him tonight. And you all might want to write him and tell him, our pastor answered you tonight. Um, we're reading from Nehemiah, and my message is entitled tonight. And I would love to, I'm, I don't know, I feel so many emotions. Sister French says, every time I leave, you go completely crazy. And so I'm trying not to, but just in case, uh, Brother Pender, don't tape any of this. No, I'm just kidding. You can tape. <laughs> I'm kidding. You can tape all of it. You can tape it, but don't give it to Sister French. Whatever you do, don't let her hear this message. <clears throat> I'm preaching tonight on the subject, Revival and the Book. And I, I tend to be rambunctious. I tend to, to be loud. I tend to get emotional. I've been accused of that. I've even been, uh, people will say, you, you're, you move around a lot and dance a lot and stuff like that. So I have purposely asked the Lord to allow me to say what I want to say tonight with, without feeling the necessity of emotion or doing it in a certain way. Because I love to preach, and I love to preach 
I like to get with it, as we sometimes say. I like to. I like preaching like that. I have no problem with it. But if that will obscure what I'm going to say tonight, then I will stand perfectly still. The word of God is our only hope in these last days. Someone said to me, no, it's the spirit, to which I replied, you would know nothing of the spirit if it were not for his word. I'm not trying to pit them against each other. I am simply saying that without the word, we would be nothing. So I'm reading tonight from the book of, did I tell you, (laughs) from the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to get very uh, boring and and so on. I just I'm just going to do it, and you can, uh, t- you know, take a pill or uh, an aspirin, whatever you've got to do to get through it. But I'm reading verses. I'm reading five verses. Five verses, folks. We can surely endure five short verses. And stand in reverence to the word of God. And of course we always do here. I'm, I'm really preaching. I'm preaching. I am standing against the spirit of an age that has lost its way. Like many millions of preachers across our world today. They're not all in America. Many of them are in China. And many of them are in South America. And many of them are in Russia. And in communist Lands. Not too long ago, I preached in a communist country where they confiscated all of my clothes, everything that I had, because I went off. See, they were watching me. I wasn't supposed to take a three-hour train ride. But little did they know I was going to baptize a bunch of folks along the, the, uh, somewhere down there in southern Russia. And, and those people were hungry for God. And it didn't matter what the Russian soldiers thought about it. It was time for them to be baptized in the name above every name. And so we just couldn't worry about it. And when they waved their guns at me as I came into the airport, we recently had missionaries that started the work that I was preaching in, and I felt so humbled to even be in their presence. And then to have them at our church was a tremendous privilege. And they're, they're going back. They are great people, but they have faced that all of their lives. Now they've moved from Belarus to, um, where was it? I forget the new country, but Ukraine or something, I forget. But they're still there. Doesn't he have a Ph.D., Brother French? What was it he had, a master's, Ph.D. or whatever? Gave it all up to go to Russia where he is not welcome to preach the gospel. And, he's, and literally tens of thousands of people are, are being changed. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. You see that in parentheses? All that means is that I skipped the part where they built a big platform and he was up on it. And so, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. I want want our friend here to hear it. I want him to hear it. 
all these 8,000 verses in the Bible that you want us to throw out. I want you to hear this. When they opened the book, all the people stood up. Just opening the book. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. That is to say in Hebrew, and I've taught Hebrew for years, and I've studied Greek for years, sir, sir, you're, a, you're, a, you're quite brilliant. I, let me check and see here how much Greek you have. doesn't matter, but it uh, must be quite a bit if he knows that much about it. <clears throat> but I started studying Latin when I was in the ninth grade. I got a scholarship to the university and, and studied ancient language, got a, a degree, a, a, a scholarship to study ancient language at when I was only 15, 16. By the time I was 18, I was already had a scholarship to study Latin at the university. I began te uh, studying Greek. I studied Greek for eight years. I, I, I enjoy that. If you don't like me saying it, well, then you better meet somebody else because I've studied Greek for eight years. And I studied Hebrew for several years, and I taught Hebrew. I don't, I'm not real good at Hebrew, but I, I know Hebrew. I can teach it. I'm not that good. If you were really good at Hebrew, I'd just have to say, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not that good. But now, Greek is different. I, I, Greek, I can hold my own. Latin, I'm okay. I'm 57, and I have loved the Word of God all my life. When my dad was a drunk, the Word of God said, believe, and I trusted the Word of God, and it worked. It worked. It said, and they shall speak with tongues. And I believed it. And I suddenly began to speak in other tongues. And even though I spoke Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and a little bit of this or that, uh, I realized that suddenly I was speaking in languages that I did not know and that I could not have learned. And my intellect told me it's not possible to do that because you can't begin to speak as the system. I mean, it takes years to study. I mean, just think of the difference between Greek and Hebrew. Just think of the difference between Hebrew and Latin or French or German. I mean, just think of, and then to be suddenly speaking a language you don't even know. The, the psychologist will tell you that's simply not, it's not possible. And I would say, amen, amen, that's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. And so if God decides to do it, so I got news for my friend. There's a bunch of folks that will, the minute the book is open, they're going to stand to their feet and they're going to say, Blessed be the Lord. They love the Lord. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen. With the lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I wanted to do this tonight and I told the Lord that I, that I wanted to do it. I wanted to just, I felt so good and, and I felt 
the presence of the Lord, and I said, I, I want to just get down like they did. You've, you've stirred me to preach this. I'd like to just get right down there. But then somebody will wonder, why is the pastor just prostrate? I mean, what is going on? That he's, Is something wrong? Is he nervous about something? And, and I said, Lord, I, I, don't, I won't do it because I, I, I don't want any misrepresentation of it. I only want to do it, and I will do it before I leave this platform. I am only going to bow my face because I want it to be known. I want them to know they can write a million books and I will fall prostrate before God and I will love the word of God with all of my soul. I love the word of God. They can talk all they want about 8,000 verses. Also, Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabethai, Hadia, Maasia, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Pelaiah. And the Levites, how many, did you count that, how many names there were there? I counted 13 people, all Hebrew names. They caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly. Everyone say distinctly. That is clearly or plainly. And gave the sense or the, the meaning. They, they, they explained it. And caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tirshatha, which is Hebrew. Well, no, 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 no. But it means governor. I'm not going to explain that. I don't have time to explain that. And Ezra the priest, the scribe. That is the scribe priest. He literally would write out. The word of God. There was no, there were no printing presses, folks. They would write it by hand, and whoever they, they, they loved the Bible, the things of God so much that, the minute it was in danger, they would give their own lives. They would throw themselves over the book to protect the word of God, so that they could defend their, their book. So Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, and I, I know I've kept you, this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Let's bow our heads together, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we're preaching tonight on revival and the book. And there's a holy hush here where we often dance and shout. We, we love it. We, we enjoy that. But we're in a very dangerous hour where we can't just dance our way into everything. And tonight I pray that 
whatever it is, Lord, there's a lot I want to say, and maybe I shouldn't say it. Maybe you won't let me say it all. But I do pray that you will anoint your messenger tonight, and I, I come humbly to this desk. I don't come here tonight because I know a little bit of some language. I don't come because I've got some kind of a degree somewhere in this world. I come here because I'm a lover of the word of God. And I weep when I realize the value of it in my life. And I pray that you will help everyone under the sound of my voice to fall in love with the word of God. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Amen. You may be seated. There you go. Thank you for standing. I I told the Lord that we would stand for the reading, and then I, I get so carried away. We always stand, but usually a brief portion, but it just seemed appropriate tonight in light of our text. Now, I'm only going to scratch the surface, but I want to talk to you about the, the way the Bible brings revival. Or, or another word I'd like to use is restoration. Everyone say restoration. Now, I have here, and I'll, I'll walk around with this. I, they they want to make sure, this is going to be so great, they want to have this on tape. Um, I have here the top-selling Bibles in, uh, in the United States today, English Bibles. And, uh, I, you know, just to be nice, I'm not going to say what they are because I'm going to make a couple statements about them. I was praying the other day, and I always pray the Lord's Prayer. And I, I mean, I not only pray it, but I pray using it. Our Father, which art in heaven. I always uh, pretty much use the, the authorized King James sort of lingo. I, not because I have to, but I like it, and, and I do. Our, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts. See, I, I can't even pray that far into the Lord's. I could never pray the Lord's Prayer like that. I pray one word of the Lord's Prayer. When I get to the word Father, I'm on the floor. Our Father. Woo! I mean, that's enough right there. And I have to work for an hour to get through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in here in heaven. And I tell the devil, you know he's in heaven, devil. You know where he is. You know he's God. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, so, okay, that's it. I'm not going to do that again. I want to. I could, but I'm not going to. I'm going to stay right. I'm going to preach this tonight. You, you can take a nap. Remember to bring a pillow sometimes. You just you need to just prepare for this. And so I was, uh, I was just, I wanted to get every major Bible. And being in ancient language and teaching ancient language, I meet these people that say, well, the Bible, you know, is full of errors and and these people that say, well, things have changed and the Bible's good, but you know, there's a lot of holy books. And, and I, those, you meet them all the time. But, uh, but there's also this new thing, which is, is uh, being, this is what he's talking about. He is telling me that I have to agree with him that the new theological theory, which says the Bible we've used for 2,000 years is not correct. We've got to get rid of it, and we've got to change it. So I thought, well, let me see what, I mean, I was pretty sure, but 
uh, I wanted to just see, because these are good, these are interesting Bibles. And uh, so I'm not going to name them. I was going to name them, but I won't now because I'm being a little negative about them. And that's not what I'm, I'm not worried about being negative about them. Uh, anyway, I, I went through and all of these, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to take these off. Uh, I'm trying to hold this for Brother Pender so I don't, so we get this for, they're, you're going to want to be buying this for many years to come. And all of these Bibles here, these are translations in English. I could read the names of them. You, you've never heard of them. This is a brand new one that says, won't say father. It says mother, father, and, you know, uh, our mother. And is that kind of it? That's the new thing. See, that's another trend going on in religion today that, you know, you can't say he's a father because that offends all the mothers and so on. I'd like to know the mother that offends. I'm serious. And then there's this one which I just got. This is what I call the Baptist Bible. And I mean that in a very nice way. I'm not saying that because I'm Pentecostal. It just is a Baptist Bible. And it has raced to the top in bestseller Bibles. It's number, didn't I tell you that's number three now or something? Maybe four. And this is only translated a few years ago. And now it's one of the top selling three Bibles in the world. Of course, the King James is the best-selling Bible in the world. And this does not include Catholic Bibles. And I don't know, I've never seen a study that even includes the Catholic Bibles in there. So I don't know the answer to it. But this is the third most fastest selling Bible in the world right there. Uh, then this is the new, uh, I, I got this one the other day because I wanted to see how it, because uh, I'm always working on translation. And then this has been around for about 40 years. This is uh, another popular Bible. All of them cut out. The, all of these Bibles cut out the last verse of the Lord's Prayer. All of them. All of these Bibles. This has been around since they, I think it was in the 70s, probably. They st I think that's right. Maybe, maybe even earlier. That, and this is a very popular, maybe the second most popular Bible in the world right there. English Bible in the world. They've cut out the last verse. So, what, what he's telling me is you have got to quit praying the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, there's a page. I don't know what page it is. Um, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you can't pray the last verse anymore. Because we're smart and we have figured out that there's a reason that some of these verses got into the Bible and we don't agree with it anymore. We're going to cut them out of the Bible. And so you have to quit praying the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us uh, uh, and, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That verse has to be cut out. For thine is the kingdom. Cut, you can't say that. And the glory. Can't say that. And the power forever. Amen. You can't, you can't, that's got to go. And you know what I said? Okay. All right. Every time I pray the Lord's Prayer for the next week, I'm going to start with that verse. For thine is the kingdom. Hallelujah. For thine. That's the way I feel about it. Okay, that's it. No, no, no more of that. That's how I feel about it. Because I want to tell you right now, they haven't convinced me not one little iota, which is a little Greek word that means like the dot on an I. They have not convinced me that these things should not be in the Bible. 
because they're so intelligent and they found a couple things somewhere in some valley and they think those are more important than every every single uh, manuscript in the in the entire world. I got news for you, friend. God doesn't wait on somebody to discover a manuscript in some valley somewhere. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he knows that his word is alive. And when we recognize the power and the and the importance of his word, then suddenly everything comes alive. And so it is with revival. And I am, I am not backing down. I am going to stand for the word of God. Folks, I want to tell you, the greatest battle of our day is going to, in religion. It's not going to be uh, marriage. It's not going to be uh, speaking in tongues. It's not going to be Bible interpretation. It is going to be the Bible. That's exactly where the battle is going to be in the days ahead. And we're living in an hour when people are willing to de- uh, depend on a lot of things. But there is, uh, folks, let me tell you something. The reason the church is where it's at today is because God has given us his word. Aren't you thankful tonight? Praise God. So revival is nothing more than emotionalism. And I'm an emotional person. Someone asked me one time, well, you're speaking in tongues. Why? And, and you teach uh, Hebrew. Why, why would you speak a, a language you don't know? Well, because when the spirit, hey, folks, when the spirit gets to moving and, you know, you can't explain everything. There are things you don't have an answer to. We, uh, you may want to. I'm not saying you don't want to explain it. I'm just telling you that you cannot explain everything. You're not capable of knowing everything. But God knows everything. If these events in Nehemiah tell us anything, they are here to show us the importance of the place of the book in the cause of revival. And let me explain why. Can you say praise the Lord? Say you want revival, so you want backsliders to find the same power that they knew, let's say, 20 years ago. Let's say 10 years ago. You know someone, and they were on fire for God today. They're as backslidden as any sinner in, in any uh, honky-tonk. Are there places called honky-tonks? Uh, in any gin joint. Are there places called gin joints? Uh, any place in this old world you want to think about and they're just as cold and, and backslidden as they can be I want to tell you something you, you want them to be uh, brought back and restored of course you do if you love a soul you want them to know and realize and the devil says nope it's over it's hopeless but I tell you today I know it is not hopeless because God's word tells me it is not hopeless God's word shows me But instead, what do we do? We turn either to mental and intellectual answers. Who's smartest? Who has the greatest scholarship? Who's the the mind among us? Or we turn to emotional focusing of attention on some hero somewhere. Like on a TV set or some some kind of a hero. Where we go, whoo, that's my hero. And we don't even have a clue who they are. Not that you shouldn't trust anybody, but, but you, we turn in some emotional, and so we start thinking in some emotional way, and, and we, we, if we're not careful, we will miss the fact that God has already given us answers in his holy word. He's already given us answers right here in his holy word. So it's hard to believe that 
the children of Israel lost the glory of God and turned from the truth. That's exactly what they did. That's where Nehemiah was. See, Nehemiah was a man, and Ezra, it is one of the most confusing eras of, of Scripture ever, ever. I mean, ever, just you name a period of time, even ancient Genesis. I don't think, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm just overstating it, but the, the time of the restoration, the time after. Now, let, let me develop it a little bit more. So, Nehemiah is, is and of course we're reading from Nehemiah. And I, so, Nehemiah is telling us that they had been in such a long period of, of, uh, of drought without the word. And... Uh, that they had known God in the past. And chapter 9, just look at chapter 9, just, just kind of follow me. I, I, don't, I don't tend to get, go over there. I don't have time to go there. But like, look at verse 7. I'm going to look over there. Thou art the God, the Lord, who didst, cho- who didst choose Abram. So Abraham, he goes back all the way to Abraham. Now, he doesn't mention Adam and Eve, but basically what he's doing is he's going back into the Genesis account, and he's saying, look at all these people. And he's saying that in the past, we had this great revelation. God gave us revelation. We trusted God and we, we proved God. And, and, uh, and we, we, God demonstrated that he was God and not Pharaoh. How many knows that Pharaoh's not our God? This world is not our God. Abraham, the Bible says, uh, he, he believed and God proved himself when, how many remembers the great story of Abraham? What was it? Okay, the great story of Abraham was that God was going to use him and make of Abraham the nation of Israel. But the only descendant he had was a little boy named Isaac. And God said, go kill him. But God spared Abraham by bringing him into that test. And then just at the last moment, he he brought the sacrifice. And Abraham becomes a great testimony. I'm telling you tonight, if we ever lose the Bible, we have lost our testimony. We will lose everything that God has for the church. So we know about Abraham. Then he's look at verse 11. I'm just, I got to look over, but thou just divide the sea. So now we're talking about Moses. This is Nehemiah now. And so he says Moses took them right through the Red Sea. There was no way out. Mountains, Pharaoh, army, chariots, and, and God just kept them going and led them through the Red Sea. And then, of course, the significance of that is that on the other side of the Red Sea, which I know you want me to, you know, uh, violate what I've said I'm going to do, and that is I'm going to preach this message. On the other side of the Red Sea, with all the wind and the, and the, and the, and the sea being pushed up, and, and then they looking down in there and looking at that, and, and every account I've checked in the last few days, 
I don't know what got me on it, but I was just wanting to make sure it said they were on dry ground. How many have ever read that in the Bible? That they walked across on dry ground. Someone asked me recently, didn't it say it was on dry ground? I said, yes, but maybe, you know, let me take a look at that. So I was looking at it, and, and every place that every place I've ever read about it says they went across on dry ground. And when they got to the other side, the, the thing that they were facing was to come before God on Mount Sinai, and there the word of God was given to them. And, of course, the, very, the commandments on stone, and, and that was, uh, of course, we know that the first five books of this Bible were written by Moses. God confirmed to Moses in Genesis that he had made Adam and Eve from the dust of the ground, that the beginning of all things had come from God, that uh, didn't say we came from a tadpole. It said that we came from the hand of God. Does anybody here believe that tonight? We find that in God's word. I don't know if you're aware of it, but the Bible also tells us in 1 Kings chapter 6, and please, I'm not trying to get you to turn to all these places, that the parting of the Red Sea and the, the story of Moses was so important that 1 Kings 6 says, and this was many, 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 many years later, hundreds of years later, says, well, 1 Kings 6 tells us that from the time that the waters parted until he wrote 1 Kings chapter 6, and if you were there, you could look, but we're not. I'm just telling you this there. You can look it up. That it was 480 years from the time that they stepped into that water until the kings got into trouble in 1 Kings chapter 6. That was almost, so I'm going to just say 500 years. But the Bible says, and it was true, that it was 400 and 80 years from the time that wind was blowing. And Moses said, come on, church. Come on, get in there. The Pharaoh's coming. And they stepped into that water as a testimony that it was nearly 500 years until the kings began to mess it all up. And the kings of Israel began to, you know, do this and do that and do the other thing. And the Bible tells us that from the, the time of 1 Kings chapter 6 and the time of David, David secured Israel, the kingdom was brought into place, and the temple became the focus of everything. Now, of course, we, we've been teaching on the tabernacle. I know some of you think, oh, you're trying to slip in a little more tabernacle because you're all done with that. But that's not true. That's not why I'm preaching this. But the temple was built, and David wanted to build the temple. And God said to David, there, there's something that I've got to do, and I can't let you, David, I can't let you build it because I've got all of this in my hands. Church, I'm telling you tonight that God has it all in his hand. You need to recognize the God of heaven. He knows everything. Don't get caught up in this world. Don't let this world blind you. So David was so anxious, he bit his lip. He, he just wrung his robes out wanting to build that temple for God. And the Bible tells us that it was so magnificent that, that it took a hundred, uh, I'm sorry, it took 10,000 uh, workers every shift for seven years. Did you hear what I said? To build God a house. 
Okay, friend. thousand verses and a big old chunk of the Lord's prayer and you don't pray it but I have a God that could tell Solomon every piece of gold that was to be laid across the door he knew everything about them he knew them from the top to the bottom and the Bible says that it took ten thousand men every shift three shifts so that would be uh, whatever three shifts are, over the morning and then into the night and then all night long, all for seven years. And then they had to hire 70,000, and I can't add it up this quick, but if you, if you look it up, you'll see that it was 183,000 people employed to build that temple. But 70,000 were employed for one reason. In order to give God this house, they had to hire these 70,000 men to pull the stones from rock quarries across land and over mountains and through the hot, steamy daytime or night, whatever time it was. I would assume they did this in the day. 70,000 other men were hired and all that they did was every day they got up and they said, I'm going to haul some more stone for the house of God. God deserves a place of worship. And Moses showed us how awesome it was at Sinai. And now I want to just eat. I want to be able to tell my children that I've got the burn marks on my shoulder. I hold the stone that's over the holy place. I was there. I was in the lineup that day. And I pulled on it. I'll never forget how it burned my shoulder. But just to have that to show my kids. I'm going to be able to say, look here, look here, baby. See that? I was there. I was there and I helped to build the house of God. The God that Moses told us about is not something we put in a book. And it's not some theory that we can smugly come along and say, throw your Bible out a window because I know a little Hebrew. Oh no, my friend, it was so rooted in them. All they could remember was we got up that morning and Pharaoh was on our trail. But God delivered us. God took us through. God took us through. Hundred and eighty three thousand. So it took five hundred years to bring us to David. And then after five hundred years of the kings, it was completely in shambles. And by the time you get to Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, who was out of his mind. Did you know that? 
Nebuchadnezzar was a ill man. And I'm talking about the grandfather, not Nebuchadnezzar II. I don't know if he was crazy or not. But old grandpa was out of his mind. He literally was a murderous barbarian. And God was so sick of Israel who had taken the words of God and just threw them over in the dust heap. And God said, I'm tired of it. I have led you through the Red Sea. I have given you all of these things. I have given you the spirit of the glory of God. I have even taken your sins away when you were unworthy of it. And so I am going to wipe the kings off of the face of the earth. And in 605, when Nebuchadnezzar marched into Jerusalem, and those families were screaming, babies were, they say that Nebuchadnezzar was so ruthless that he would, oh, I can't say this in public, but I, I can't say that. He was so ruthless that I can't tell you the things that he did to little babies and to just to be vicious, just to be horrific. And then when Zedekiah refused to do exactly what he told him to do, he came back a few years later by five, uh, what was it, 586, somewhere in there. And he came back and he said, uh, he put siege to the city of Jerusalem and they said, oh, surely, surely we will not lose our temple. No, no, we can't lose our temple. God, you've got to help us now. And God said, no. No, I won't, I won't listen to you. You've abandoned my word. You're on your own now. Now you've got to face this guy. And Nebuchadnezzar came marching in. And when he finally got through the gates, and I, I, won't, I won't go into it. it. It is so Horrific. He wiped out the city. Not a single person was left. I mean, there was not one person left in the city of Jerusalem. He forced them to leave Jerusalem. And they lined up for miles. Some historians say that the line of Jewish people with wagons and children and goats and so forth, was so many miles long the trail that led to Babylon. He said, you will never come back to this city. You will never see this city again. And as far as they knew, that was true. They had, their king was dead. They killed his sons. They, they, they killed most everybody there except the women and the children. Most of the men, some reports claim that no men actually survived. That's what some reports have said. That it was so, so bad that the destruction of God's people was so overwhelming. You see, when I tell you that Nehemiah is telling us, we need a restoration. We need revival, oh God. Bring us back to revival, oh God. It was more. 
more than just a sermon. They had lost everything. And God said, okay, you want revival? Then get out there and look for the book. Find that book. Find that book. Bring it back. Bring it back. And Ezra spent his lifetime. Oh, I wish I could preach this. I wish I could preach this all the way through tonight. Ezra spent his lifetime. Now, I, I want to say this. I, some of you, I know you can't handle it. Just uh, give me a, a few more seconds here. So they begin to cry out to God. You know this, right? Because Daniel had been taken into captivity and he became so well loved. And then, of course, God said, okay, I'm going to do something about it. I've held Nebuchadnezzar's mind together these years, and, and I've allowed him to do these horrific things, and he's drawn my people into Babylon. But I'm going to begin the process of restoring my people. And he woke, he woke up the greatest king. Now you, you can take it or leave it. I'm going to preach this tonight. There was a young king who was one of the youngest soldiers in the history of, of kingdoms. His name was Cyrus. They later called him Cyrus the Great. And, and that's enough said. Cyrus is a ancient Persian word. And, and I don't know Persian, but anyway. And so Cyrus had become such a magnificent... They still use... The army tactics of Cyrus the Great to this day. He was, now I know you're thinking Alexander the Great. Cyrus conquered the Grecian Empire. Cyrus conquered the Egyptian Empire. He conquered the entire world. In fact, Cyrus believed that he had conquered every kingdom on earth. That's what he believed. His, his uh, stenographers or whatever they're called, they would say that he, they wrote this. I mean, this is just history, folks, that he said he has conquered every kingdom in the world. He hadn't, <laughs> but he thought he had. He thought he conquered every. He didn't even realize there was a China over there. <laughs> you know, men often think that they're really doing something. But he was the greatest conqueror up to that time. There had never been a man like him. And one night he woke up. And said, what about Israel? Oh, king there. <laughs> they're, they're, long, they're long gone. They're, they're, they're history. There is no Israel. Well, but surely there are the people of Israel. Surely there's somewhere. Well, um, Yes, I believe, sir, that many of them were brought to Babylon. And when, oh, Nebuchadnezzar passed on, 
Many of them stayed there. Some are even here in Persia, which of course is modern day Iran. He said, well, I, I want to help them. What? I, I want to help them. I feel, he was a worshiper of, a, of what we call Zoroasterism. It's far too weird to even begin talking about, but he, he worshiped Zoroaster. Very, very interesting religion. And because he dreamed it in a dream, he felt he had to, he had to follow through. And so he began to make the contacts and it, he made a decree. I want it to be known throughout the world that Cyrus the Great has declared Israel belongs to the Hebrew people and they can return at will. I have given it back to the people. All of this was placed in the heart of a king that most people have long forgotten. But I want to tell you something, church. God never forgets. He knows exactly what he's doing. When some of these books are in the flames and long gone, there's going to be a God that remembers everything and his eternal word is going to stand the course of time. And so oh, Nehemiah said, wait a minute. And Cyrus died in uh, about 530. And, and so they begin to say, but we want to go back. We want to go back. We want to go back. They made three major journeys back, beginning with Zerubbabel who became governor and so on. But we have time for that but then Nehemiah came along they built the temple and they dedicated not Solomon's because that had been destroyed uh, left that out but that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and everything had been just literally knocked down and so they came in and, and, and Zubabel took him about 20 years but in 515 BC or some say BCE that's the, that's the way we have to say it these days They dedicated the temple of God. Folks, we're going to soon, by the time we get to Nehemiah and that little platform they built, they had been without their scriptures for 120 years. Many of them couldn't even remember. In fact, most of them had long forgotten how to even speak Hebrew, more or less read it. A lot of people can speak a language, they can't read it and certainly couldn't write it. Long ago, they'd become Persian or Babylonish and had given up on their Hebrew ways. They still believed it, but they had lost the ability to read their own scriptures. And many folks didn't even know where the scriptures were. When they had grabbed them, when the temple was destroyed, there was these folks grabbing them and they were dying. They would grape themselves. Many people, I've even asked Hebrew uh, uh, rabbis, I've said, who, who do you think rescued the scriptures? When 
know, Nebuchadnezzar came in there and slaughtered them. Who rescued the scriptures? And they said, our fathers rescued those scriptures. They hid them. They ran. They, you want to know why the Dead Sea Scrolls were found? Because a scribe went and hid them in Qumran in mountains and buried them in pottery in order to keep them safe from all harm. And today we have the oldest books in the history of the world. Let me tell you something, folks. You, when you don't have it, that's when you're going to realize you need this book like never before. And they said, Ezra, what do we got to do to be restored? And he said, we got to find the book. We got to get it all together here in Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple, but it was exposed. There were no walls. So Nehemiah and Ezra came along. Two things they needed. They needed to protect the house of God. And church, I recommend to you tonight, and I'm wrapping it up. But if we do not protect the house of God, we will lose our faith. We must protect the house of God. And then we must restore the teaching of the word of God. Many of those people that day, when Ezra stood on that freshly made platform way over their heads, and he read, the Bible says, from morning until noonday. So I take that to mean six hours. From early morning until noon, they stood. The Bible says they stood for six hours and the reading of the word. And when he opened the book, it was so holy to them. Now, I don't know about this guy. Evidently, he can throw 8,000 verses away and half of the Lord's Prayer. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord these things are rooted deep in our hearts. <laughs> and we are going to love it all the days of our lives. Does anybody feel that way tonight? I wonder if we could do something a little different tonight. Could you grab your Bible and bring it up here tonight? You know, I'm, we're not going to do this a lot, but let's do it tonight. Get a Bible. If you don't have one, I've got some here, but about half the Bible's missing. But you, no, I'm just kidding. No, grab a Bible and let's come up to the front. And let's just, let's just have a, a time of waving the word of God to the Lord and letting him know that we are going to stand for the word of God. Oh, hallelujah. Folks, someone said, why are you worried about him cutting part of the Lord's prayer out? Because I don't want any of it cut out. I don't want anybody taking anything out of the word of God. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's do it different. Let's do it like the Hebrews do it. We don't even, uh, not that we don't want piano or anything, because I know these young folks, all of us love music. I love music. I'm not saying that. But let's do it like the Hebrews, and let's just, let's just start praising the Lord just a little bit with our voices, without any instruments. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, we praise you, Jesus. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. I will let nothing take your word from me, Lord. From me, Lord. No, no, no. I want to put it on the forehead. I want to put it in the hearts of my children. I want to use it. I want to know it. I want to love it all the days of my life. I want to give you praise, Lord. 
And when I do, revival will come and restore me to your salvation. For there is a Jesus who must come to this temple. I've got to give myself to the building of your house. Oh, thy word is leading me. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so we commit to it, Jesus. Oh, we commit to it, Jesus. Oh, I commit to it, Jesus. I commit to it, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. Lord, I feel revival in, in the house of God. Oh, yes, I do. Hallelujah. Praise God. If you have a Bible, why don't you just lift it up above your head, and I think that'd be a great gesture, and let's thank the Lord for his word for just a moment. Could we do that? We praise you, Lord. We praise you, praise you, praise you. Oh, Shema Yisrael, Shema. Oh, Lord. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Hallelujah. We praise you. We praise you, Lord. Let's pray together. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Praise God.